This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Michelle Johnston, Welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much. It's so amazing to be here. Yeah, yeah. It's really nice to have you. Michelle is an emergency physician and an author. Now, that's an odd combo. She is a staff specialist at the Royal Perth Hospital Emergency Department, a busy inner city trauma centre where she works as both a clinician and a teacher. Michelle's first novel, Dustfall, was shortlisted for the Mud Literary Prize for a debut novel in 2019. Her latest novel, Tiny Uncertain Miracles, is a sweet, sad, gritty and funny and unexpectedly uplifting novel about family, friendship, faith, love and alchemy. What a story. Well, you've written an interesting story and you have an interesting story. Yes, it's sometimes, and it's really interesting when I hear that um, the juxtaposition of my life as a doctor and the life as a writer and yeah. people often say, you know, how do they fit together and mostly I just say they don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you know, I, I know there are a couple of others. I can't remember their names at the moment, but I have interviewed crime fiction, I think, writers of crime fiction that have been GPs perhaps and, and become writers. Take me back to where you grew up and what it is you that inspired you to get firstly to medicine because that kind of been easy and then to books. So let's go right back. Right back. So I think those two lives, the doctor and the writer, have taken these parallel paths and haven't crossed over all that much. The life, the sort of the evolution of the doctor in me was one of those, one of those things where you're kind of in this rut of predictability and you don't necessarily make a lot of choices about where you go. Coming back, I've never regretted a moment doing medicine. It's been amazing. But I don't know whether I necessarily chose it. You know, you go through, you get good marks. At one stage, I went to my careers counsellor at school. I went to a very beige high school back in the kind of um, late 70s, 80s in Rossmoyne. Uh, it's a small suburb south of Perth. Perth, you know, the forgotten side of the country uh, over the other side of the rabbit The beautiful fence. side of the country. Oh, it is beautiful. But um, sometimes we even forget we're here. <laughs> still don't feel we're quite part of the the big bustling nation of Australia but anyway so small school beige school uh careers counselor one went once to the careers counselor and they say well what do you want to do and I'm like oh my god I thought you were supposed to tell us that I don't know and I said maybe something where I could like help people and they said okay well, you should be a nurse. And they're, okay, that sounds great. And never thinking that I could perhaps go beyond nursing as an incredibly worthy profession. But, you know, I had, had reasonably good marks and eventually I thought, no, actually, maybe I could, maybe I could try being a doctor. And it kind of just went from there. And it was a stumbling through a pathway of least resistance, I think, to find well, the I things that suited too, me. 
Yeah, I think too, sorry to interrupt, but I think those vocational courses are like that, like laws like that. Teaching in a way is like that. Nursing is like that, where you really, it's kind of predetermined from the minute you step foot into that path, isn't it? That's how those vocational courses work. It certainly was, and it certainly was back then. There was kind of necessarily even have the brain space to imagine that there would be anything but those those very structured career pathways. Uh, and it's only it was only very latterly that I thought, ah, you know, there there are other there are other things in life. And then getting back to this other parallel pathway, and I've always always thought I had the heart of a writer and the soul of a poet, even though there wasn't a lot put down on paper. <laughs> Look, emergency medicine does take up a lot of the bandwidth of one's brain and having children, getting them wow. alive through to adulthood. So it was really only in the last decade that I thought, no, you know, I really, I believe so much in the power of literature. I know what books have done for me and I wanted to be able to almost like give that gift back, pay it forward, continue the, you know, the great tradition of writing. And it really felt it was kind of a calling. I, I, I just, I have to write and now I can't not write. I want to go back to the path. So you left school. Were you, when you were at school, were you attracted to the sciences and the arts or both? Were you one of those kids that loved to read as well as loved to go learn Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I am one of those people that just find like wonder and awe in everything. There's not anything that doesn't fascinate me. I wish I, you know, I could live a a billion lifetimes and study everything uh, really deeply. And so it's been kind of hard. That's kind of very broad interest to keep keep it within the guardrails, if you like, so that you could so that I could really specialize in certain areas. But I I love, I, you know, I love literature. I've read voraciously my entire life since I was like three and taught myself to read lying on the on my tummy on the lounge floor with a, one of those little record players where you you'd turn the page and listen to the ping and like taught myself that's what the words sounded like, you know, and then just a life lived in books. Um, I want to talk about, and you'll know this more than anyone else, you can't take away the fact that being a doctor is people watching in a way. You know, you are hearing stories every second of the day, I'd imagine. 100%. In emergency medicine, even more so, it's just this wash, this tsunami of humanity. We see so much of humanity that perhaps even others don't get to see, you know, people stripped away, people's most vulnerable, tender moments. They are they open themselves up to you in a way that they perhaps wouldn't ever do. Uh, you see they're everything. They're desperate. Well, that's why they're there. Great tragedy, great reserves of courage and bravery, uh, love and care. What attracted you Bravado. to emergency medicine? rather than uh, specialty or a GP or whatever. I like the fact that you didn't have to sit in a clinic and you didn't have to go to too many meetings. Uh, so that was, you know, that's the uh, the twee summary, but kind of true. But also it, it's just infinitely varying. There is never a shift that's the same. And it, it it's anywhere from the, the most profound moments um, of life-saving, not quite heroism, but just you're all in there. There's no time for anything else to, to the mundane, to the stories, to the to the just coming into contact with so many different people. And you're right, it those sorts of stories are always going to inform a, a writing brain um, because you just you see this the spectrum of humanity and how people react. After all, that's what our stories are. And it's like people come into the emergency department at this peak of their narrative arc, if you like. They've had this sudden change, and, after, and that's what literature is. You know, people yeah. 
pushed to their limits, characters having to change because of unexpected circumstances. And I think too, and I don't know if I'm fantasising this, but I remember the Lint Cafe. Do you remember that terrible? Shocking. Yes, the the shooting, the the hostages. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And there were a couple of deaths there. One of them was a solicitor, a young solicitor, who died of a shrapnel hit or, or something I remember interviewing a woman months and months and months later and she told me that that young solicitor was taken to emergency and there were doctors in their pyjamas looking after her and trying to save her life. And that image as a story has never left me. Yes, I. It, they are a kind of a breed apart, the people that maybe have self-selected to end up staying in emergency medicine when there are so many, there's so much against it and so much challenge, stress, et cetera, but still this core of belief that maybe, you know, we can make a little bit of a a difference. I don't ever want to sound too pompous about what we do. We all, every human has an important cog in in this wheel of humanity and the, the cosmos, but it, it is does feel very rewarding to be able, Well, not every day. <laughs> it's a good day. Um, it really doesn't feel like it. Just feels like another job that I'm very proud to keep turning up, even though I often don't want to. Uh, you know, I'd much rather be at home with a book uh, or writing. But well, there do is- you find it? Stressful? Is it a stressful job? Oh, unquestionably, uh, unquestionably. You certainly get used to it. I've been doing it for 30 years. You do get used to it. Uh, you get used to that level of stress. You get better at the job. You get more confident in your own hands, your own brain, your abilities. But that's the stress never leaves it. It's very stressful to have to come and face violence, uh, violence against you, anger, uh, alcohol and drugs, overcrowding, this moral injury where we you feel you you cannot provide the service that you believe to be appropriate because of circumstances around you. That's a very damaging thing. So those things are the stressful things, not necessarily the critically unwell patient who comes through the door. Yeah. We, and it's kind of a joke, but it's not a joke. We try to be mindful about all sorts of uh, situations. But, you know, in this office, when things don't work out as planned or, you know, we don't deliver on time or something happens, I say to the team, we're not in the life-saving occupation. It's not life and death. We're in marketing, right? So we will find a way out and no one's going to die. But that's not necessarily true for you, is it? No, it's not true. And we can... Our mistakes uh, absolutely can cost a life. And my first book, Dust Fall, in fact, was examining, exploring what happens when a doctor makes a mistake and the fallout, uh, the personal, the human fallout of that. It was it was set in, it was also a novel about the asbestos mines up in Whitney, but that was corporate error versus individual error. And it's a very, very personally challenging thing to do to face your own the risks that you that you take and what happens when you don't perform up to a standard that you believe you should. Mm. And do you think that it's humanly possible to do that all the time? Um, it, it, well, a lot of people do, you know, and I, there's this, once again this huge spectrum of, of how people uh, respond to different stresses to life, to what they expect of themselves, what others expect of them. I'm surrounded by 
to my natural environment is people who are resilient, well, resilient, once again, dirty word at the moment, but at its essence, resilience is kind of the ability to keep coming back um, despite the traumas and the tribulations. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we One of the most important things in, in medicine, emergency medicine particularly, is the people that we work with, this culture of support. Um, mm. You don't necessarily always get that from the hierarchy and the, the corporations that sort of the executive administrative level, but we certainly get it from each other and that's something that feeds me, feeds each, each other. Is there the um, the gender problem, if you like, in medicine? Did you come across anything like that or did you did you find that, you know, you're a doctor in your own right and you didn't have to deal with those issues or uh, did you have to deal with them earlier and now it's changed? Tell me where... where, where very, very big question and I certainly know there have been a number of books that have come out and reasonably recently about the difficulties uh, being female in that world. Now, I absolutely respect people's lived experience. Yeah. My own personal experience, it's kind of this, there's two ways to look at it. One is, once again, the incredible environment that I am very fortunate to work in. We're all, uh, all shoulders, are get, you know, it's, it, we're all struggling. The men struggle just as much as women with different, different issues and we're very supportive of each other. We've been 50% female for the last 20, 30 years uh, and we're very much respected. So my experience of sexism uh, and gender inequality personally has been reasonably low it's it's not been non-existent of course you know that that's the nature of these sort of high stress environments there's always going to be microaggressions and and perhaps I've also just ignored buried it I'm not sure I think I'm you know kind of this classic female that always doesn't think they're any good anyway you know they're always reasonably low self-esteem and I've never put that down to gender you know just always put it down to myself I suspect there's partly gender in that without so, a doubt with, without a doubt let me to tell you this quick story there's a, a really really dear friend of mine super smart great guy and I was talking to him recently and I said to him you know sometimes I feel that I have imposter syndrome every time I walk into an office or you know every time I start talking to an author and he said what is that Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that's very illustrative. I, I think perhaps I've just been a bit ignorant and blind and just thought, oh, it's just me, not my yeah. gender. That's attracted kind of this, this sense of not being good enough, not being, um, you know, never never quite being good enough, never quite hitting those uh, that standard that I would like to aspire to. So, look, uh, there is no question that we have got a long way to go before this gender equity and there are lots of other special that have it much, much harder. And it does seem to be specialty related, doesn't it? Because, you know, when you speak to people that say are in orthopaedics, it's when you speak to women particularly, it's a different story entirely, isn't it? I, I absolutely believe so. And I 100% respect and uh, believe in their, in their lived experience. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. You know, you, you get older and you just have these kind of, what do I want to achieve? Well, one of the important things for me now is just to be the best role model I can, particularly for the women coming behind me, to aspire to be not just the best clinician, but to to, to be happy, to find joy in your work, to spread that joy, to spread it to others, to find that, you know, the awe in the everyday. We are so fortunate doing medicine. It's so fascinating. We're learning so much all the time and to keep that joy of learning and to wanting to be better uh, and to sharing that, that's kind of my aim now. It's not to be the smartest person in the room. It's not to know that most papers it's not, um, it's just kind of to to hopefully shine a bit of a light on a path that I didn't know I was trailblazing at the time. I want to ask you one question. Has that old culture of doctors working seven days straight, 24 hours a day, or is that, does that still continue? And what was ever the point of it? Because as a patient, I would rather that my doctor had had seven or eight hours sleep. I agree. I understand that completely. And it's an actually an incredibly complicated answer to, uh, to, to that. So my specialty uh, is fine because we do shifts. But if you're talking one of the surgical specialties, there's a number of reasons why they continue to work ridiculous hours. There's there's ridiculous hours in training and there's ridiculous hours in, in work. And yes, of course, we'd all want our doctors well rested, but that's unaffordable. If we want to have high level, highly trained specialists who only work for eight, 10 hours, clock off, have a nice rest, we would ne- the society could never afford that. They couldn't afford to train them and they couldn't afford to have that many specialists to cover what needs to be covered. I, you know, I think of in emergency medicine, patients don't respect office hours. Trauma doesn't respect office hours. We need highly trained people to be on the ball at two in the morning. And if you need highly trained and enough people on board and ready to manage most critically ill things at two in the morning, you need a lot of staff to do that. That's a huge numbers of staff uh, with rest time and leave time and watered and fed time, etc. So it takes a long time to train a specialist. And the surgical specialists, I would uh, um, posit, they take it's a huge amount of training. I'm married to an ENT surgeon, a head and neck cancer surgeon, sleep apnea surgeon who is Unbelievable. The reason we still married is because it's always fresh. I haven't seen him for the last few weeks. Uh, ships in the night, we've been like that for 30 years. Wow. Uh, you know, it's, it's like I've never yeah. seen him before. <laughs> and that's kind of true. Like um, and, oh, but are. I totally support what he does. He's incredibly special. He's a microvascular head and neck cancer surgeon. Oh, wow. so, you know, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, so I, I, I totally get it why there's this disconnect between what we think should we should have our doctors how how they should be rostered or or uh, rosters are structured versus the reality so is your family a medical family have you born medical children oh absolutely not no not even close they've all looked at their parents oh i 
don't think so. I don't want any of that. And so, no, no, they've gone off. I have a daughter studying art in New York at the oh, moment. Wow. Be nice, very nice to be 22 and in Manhattan yeah. studying art at Parsons uh, University, an amazing university, and a son who's currently just finishing his final year 12 exam as we speak. I'm about to celebrate and say, oh, I did it. I kept them alive. Yeah, they made it. They made Ooh. it. Parents being doctors. So I feel sometimes I feel that doctors, because it's so mechanical in a way that it appears to a patient, and because I guess you've seen people 10, 15, 20 people, however many you see in a day. Sometimes when I'm treated by a doctor or I see doctors or even meet doctors socially, I feel as though they there's a lack of empathy in a way. And I, I feel that that's a tool for survival for them. Is that what you say? Yeah. That's right? Another hugely rich question uh, about how much empathy. And I, I really like to say, look, too much empathy is not good for the patients, not good no. for the doctor. It's, you know, you, you you feel terrible if you want to tell them something bad or you miss a drip or something you're constantly apologising, I don't want to hurt you, you know, I, I feel too much. And obviously the opposite end of the spectrum, it's fairly easy to, to imagine what happens if you have no empathy. So it's trying to find this sweet spot. And empathy is energy. It mm-hmm. is takes energy to be empathetic all the time. And if you're in a long shift and you've been yelled at and uh, you're facing violence and an overcrowded department and angry people, it's really energy consuming to continue. Empathy, yes, we all have sort of kind of this level, but to, to have that sort of level of empathy where you have to actually, you have to make it yourself, you have to create it uh, in those environments, it takes a lot of work and a lot of energy. And sometimes we just don't necessarily always have it doesn't mean we don't actually care and we won't always do our best but it is actually kind of hard the social situations are something a little bit different I think it's really interesting too that you mention some of the doctors that you met a little bit ordered and uh, um, structured in the way that they speak and the way they behave and that it's true and that's why in my head the doctor person and the writer person they just don't get they're kind of in there trying to murder each other because the writer person is wild and creative and funny and is ageless you know doesn't behave in a mature way whereas the doctor me is a responsible role model and needs to be looked up to and nobody wants to see that weird ass stuff going whirring away in the cogwheels. No. So that was going to be my next question. I mean, when you're writing, and I, I want to go back to writing your first book or when you decided to start writing, so you'd have to have a switch, wouldn't you? Like an off switch and an on switch. of Absolutely. Oh, well, talk to me about what you did and how you approached it. Yeah. Well, it took a, it took a long time. As I said, I always, you know, I thought I was a writer. I was always a writer in my head. And I, you know, I got to the point, I probably actually have to put something down on page and then I'm going to have to submit something to somebody else to read. And they were, that was uh, very challenging, very confronting to have to do that because you sort of get to this stage in life and kind of good, I'm at the top of my game. And I had to go back to being a complete beginner I had to be told this is not this stinks this is not very good what are you doing there's no story there's no structure oh and we the r word oh my gosh I'm you know I still struggle with that um and it still happens oh Oh, yeah. yeah Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I talk about this often, but I know this author that was, she kept a spreadsheet and she was rejected 100 times. 
I mean, I would end up in a fetal position somewhere. I mean, I just could not deal with that. I mean, that's yeah, it I'm is. It is so confronting. It's and you almost have to learn to deal with it every single time. Oh, and, and actors would be the same as well, you know. It's absolutely. really. The thing is that, you know, your work, your the, the words, the pages, the stories that you work so hard are part of you. You know, they're actually a reflection of you as a human. And for someone to go, oh, it's not very good, um, is really really challenging I've found it I've found it incredibly difficult oh and, um, and particularly coming from you know I'd imagine in an emergency room where you're I think head of emergency or something and you're confident and you've been doing this for a year and everybody does what you tell them to do and blah 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 well you can't tell a book what to do you can't tell a story what to do and you certainly can't tell a publisher what to do <laughs> uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So there's there's many ways that I need to code switch, if you yeah. like, code switch from being that responsible doctor to no, I'm just I'm I'm a creative path that I also walk down, and it's okay to, to fall off the path into the brambles uh, to get scratched up mm. and to get back on. And the bottom line is, I just so deeply believe in the power of the written word, um, of our language, what it can achieve, that I I just kind of have to put all of the rest, any part of my ego, any desire to have whatever one desires as a writer, I still don't know, just to be read. A single person reading a single book of mine is just... Were you nervous to tell your colleagues that you were writing? Or when you're being published, that you're being published? No, I, I've, I've written for a long time with the blog. I always had this kind of niche of being the weirdo literary okay. writer um, and people have enjoyed my smaller works, my blog posts, etc. So it was always kind of a natural progression that I would just stuff more Michelle into a piece. In the yeah. somewhere. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, we're almost out of time, so we need to talk about tiny uncertain miracles. Tell me about it. Yes, this has been such a joy of a project, uh, unbelievable. So basically, it's a. I'd always wanted to set a story in the like the the really crumbly labyrinthine weird basement of my hospital, and I tried lots of different stories, and then I just I couldn't work out what you know they were all different different things, but one line just came to me uh, which had no business being in a rational person's head, which was you know what if a scientist who's producing proteins from bacteria one day comes into work and finds his bacteria are producing gold. It's ridiculous, shouldn't be, you know, be spoken by normal people. But I thought, no, I'm going to write this story. But I couldn't work out who was going to tell it and end up being told through the eyes of a, a not very good chaplain. Love him, Marek, but he's he's a bit hapless and has had a lot of failure in his life. And it allowed me, having him tell this through his point of view, allowed me to explore so much that surrounded not just the science of this story, because it, I really had to have it the story had veracity. So it had to be able to be true scientifically. And let me tell you, that was a bit of a, a trial. But to keep you it can't out, get that wrong being a doctor. I can't yet. Yeah, well, and also for this, you know, the, the science of it, the, the yeah. how can this be? So that that took a lot of research. That's a whole other story. But but it also allowed me to tell the stories of what happens in a hospital through a chaplain's eyes instead of through medical eyes. So what I see but allows some, a, a different gender, a different person of, 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 a a person different of faith, background. Yeah, different background, everything, right. who's, got, who's got all these different reasons. And the basic theme of the book is why 
Do we believe the things we do? Why do any of us believe in the things we do? What makes us believe stuff? And it seems like really urgent to write it in this current environment of anti-science and this rise of opinion over science. And I and I thought, wow, this is a really great vehicle to explore why is the scientist kind of believing in alchemy and the chaplain, the man of God, believing in science? And it allowed the two of them to kind of clash together and explore those bigger themes. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful book, really beautifully packaged and presented. It's shimmering and glittery and lovely. Tiny Uncertain Miracles. Michelle, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Cheryl. It's been just a delight. Thanks so much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.